Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audio books. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device in your hands, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, etc. And here's the deal. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get Gone Girl, the bestseller by Gillian Flynn, or how about 10th of December, the new one, by the great George Saunders, narrated by George Saunders. And George, just so you know, was the guest on episode 100 of this podcast. Just about any book at Audible can be yours, free of charge, with this deal. And if you do it, if you go get the free audio book, it does help the show. I get a few nickels. That is pleasant. To download your free audio book, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a great deal. It's available Right this minute, these are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody. Right. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is currently happening. This is about people who make word art. Thank you for being here. It's nice to be with you. My name is Brad Listy. I am reporting to you from Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world. And uh, I've been thinking this morning about the desperate chase for internet traffic. That's what's been on my mind. Uh, the chase for readership for audience, for customers, for consumers, whatever you want to call it, it seems like a shit show to me. And of course, I'm talking in particular about the literary realm, like the media, publishing, journalistic, literary realm, especially when it comes to quote-unquote cultural commentary. Like there's been an explosion of this, I feel like, in the past few years, but in the past year especially. And I find it exhausting. Uh, I find it depressing. Like everybody trying to capture the cultural moment or better put everybody trying to, uh, to capitalize on the cultural moment. Like this bothers me. <laughs> I am made uh, to feel uncomfortable by this. 
by this constant pursuit of clicks uh, that I see unfolding on my computer screen on a daily basis. Everybody's chasing eyeballs. Everybody's racing to talk about whatever happens to be front and center on television or in the movies or in the news cycle or on the gossip pages, all in an effort to uh, build an audience, I guess, for themselves. Uh, I think that's why it's happening. And it's like, you know, it's everybody's a pundit. That's what I'm trying to say. It's the punditization of everyone and everything everywhere. Like everybody's writing uh, list posts. That's one like permutation of it. The top 10 most underrated supporting actors, the top 50 books to read while eating cupcakes or whatever the fuck it is. So like, for example, the Super Bowl, that's coming up. And that's obviously a major media event, like at least here in the United States. And, uh, you know, undoubtedly, there's going to be endless chatter about it online. People are going to be tweeting about it and writing posts about it on Facebook. And uh, it's a social thing. And, and I understand that it can be fun. Like everybody's watching the same show and then uh, making witty comments about it online as it happens and so on and so forth. Personally, I, I find this is, you know, exhausting. And I realize that I also realize, I got to say, you know, you can just turn it off. You don't have to watch the show. You don't have to look at your computer screen. But, you know, for work, I have to have my computer on. I have to use the Internet. I sometimes have to use social media. It's hard to avoid. And so it can be exhausting just to kind of witness it, even though I try as much as possible to, to filter out uh, all that stuff. So it's tiresome, but it's not nearly as tiresome to me uh, as this tendency uh, that I see where writers are writing essays about things like the Super Bowl in what seems to be a naked attempt to somehow capitalize on media consumption uh, trends and to harness Internet traffic and funnel it towards themselves. You know, uh, and then, of course, as like I think, a, you know, as a theoretical offshoot, I imagine they're hoping to develop a readership which will then support them and buy their books and allow them to make a fortune or whatever you, you know, whatever you call it. And so what am I saying? Uh, I think what I'm saying is that I can't do this or I don't want to do it. I am <laughs> I am sickened by this. I find it boring and repellent and desperate and emotionally needy and narcissistic and sad and I am uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed. I'm at the point now where I don't even know what to write about, uh, like especially online. I feel numb and I feel overwhelmed by how much happens online. I don't know what to add to it. Like there's nothing I can say about anything that isn't already being said or hasn't already been said a million times before. And I mean, even this right now, this podcast monologue is probably redundant. And for all I know, there's 5,000 podcasts out there with people saying the exact same thing uh, in whatever variation right this second. Or uh, like to give you another example, take something like grief. Like how many grief essays can I read online? Like I get it. Somebody died. It's awful. I'm, I'm truly sorry. Uh, but it, you know, it happens to everybody what else can be said? Why, like, why do we need to keep going over this? And I don't mean to be insensitive. I mean, I've lost people close to me. I understand that it sucks, but you know, Hey, that's what happens. It's going to happen to me. It's going to happen to you. It happens to everybody. And I have no idea what happens after the fact post-mortem. Uh, I likely never will until I meet my own end. It is a dark, infinite void and a terrifying mystery 
So let's just move on. <laughs> Next topic. I don't know. It just feels fucked to me. I feel bleak at the moment, in case you weren't aware. I feel like I am being assaulted constantly online by a tidal wave of emotionally needy pundits. Authors and journalists desperately writing essays about the Super Bowl because Super Bowl happens to be trending on Twitter. It feels whorish and gossipy and terrible and lame to me. And yet it feels like this is the game, like nowadays, increasingly. And it's a game I don't want to play. It's like, it's like this is the game, like to see who can write the wittiest, snarkiest, and most insightful 800-word essay about the San Francisco 49ers. Or, or like who can come up with the most unexpectedly brilliant existential insights into Honey Boo Boo and how she reflects the current political climate or whatever. And fuck that. What I'm saying is that I don't want to capture the cultural moment. The cultural moment is awful, and I want it to run free like a wildebeest. <laughs> oh, God. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right. My guest today is Andrea Siegel. I'm very pleased to have her here, despite uh, my foul mood. She's a wonderful writer and a very funny human being. She has published three novels to date. They are called Like the Red Panda, To Feel Stuff, and The Kid Table, uh, the last of which, The Kid Table, was optioned by Ivan Reitman. She is also an accomplished screenwriter. Uh, she's got a lot going on. She's a rising star, and we had a very good conversation. Here it is. Uh, I'll just let it happen right now i'm in pasadena california i'm lying in bed we have a hideous comforter that's plaid that i'm on top of and the room's a mess because neither one of us my boyfriend or i likes to clean so you just i mean do you live in filth not 
filth. It's it's not like disgusting, like things on surfaces, but we're just not organized. So it's like if the laundry gets done, it'll sit for a month. Right, right. Well, it's dangerous, you know, because like if you have, if you're in a couple and both of you are equally disheveled or like, you know, have a tendency to, to disorganization, then it, it can compound matters. It can be, you know, it can be dangerous. I know, but I was just having this conversation with my boyfriend last night because when I was dating him, he kept his life very, very neat. And I remember going over to his apartment for the first time and it was, you know, the floors were shiny and everything was organized and I was really impressed and I thought this guy has his shit together. (laughs) And then we get together and I find out he's like disgusting. I mean, (laughs) like on a weekly basis, I say, you have to do something about your bathroom sink. I'm like throwing up every time I come into the bedroom. It's because we have separate bathrooms because I can't even cope with what happens in his sink. What what happens in his sink? You know, he'll just shave and then, like, walk away from it. So uh, yeah. there's hair or the toothpaste will explode, and then it stays exploded for a month. Um, <laughs> just lots of objects. You know, sometimes there's, like, an iPad floating around on his bathroom sink <laughs> sitting in gel. It's just it's super chaotic. Um, and I'm more just, like, I'll have books and papers everywhere, but not, like, human hair. Like, I don't do that. You don't go there. No. But he really, he put one over on me and I thought he was a different person and now we're together and we have a baby. So, you know, yeah, then you too get, late to back out. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so you guys are, uh, you guys are parents, but you're not married like, uh, formally. Correct. We're, we're technically engaged. Oh, you are. Okay. Um, mm-hmm, but I'm, I hate the word fiance, so I won't even describe myself that way what like phonetically it bothers you or just like what like what it symbolizes or it just grosses me out i hate the sound of it um you know i hate like i hate when you're reading a book and all of a sudden the person throws in a word in a different language and it's italicized that just makes me nuts (laughs) and that's how i feel like fiance is in a conversation yeah i don't like it this is another thing this is what bothers me too is that um this was more of like a twenties thing. I don't know how old you are, but yeah, I'm in my thirties. And so I remember in like the yeah. 20, in my twenties, it was like, you'd hear people like, they'd always like, like try to casually drop in like where they had traveled internationally. Yeah. Um, it was like, it was like some sort of like social, um, you know, status indicator or something. And then the other thing that always made me just want to like punch something is when someone would say a word in French or Spanish and like all of a sudden like bust out like the full, like native, pronunciation instead of just like uh, do you know what i'm saying like like i know how i know exactly it. what you're saying like i don't know it, it's like do you watch ever the cooking channel and it's like giada dilarantis that celebrity chef do you know her i know of her i'm not you know i don't watch the cooking channel but yeah i mean i know what you're talking about she's like of italian heritage but not italian you know she's american and so she's just completely cooking something normal and then it's all of a sudden like mozzarella like out of nowhere and it's just i hate it right there should be a rule that like you and i or one of us gets to just go slap those people like i wish i I know it's not fair it's just not fancy it doesn't impress me so i feel the same way about fiance i just so you don't use it i have certain i have aversion to certain words like i'm trying to think of one like i i used to have a hard time saying panties I don't know why. Yeah, it's a bad word. I agree. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of a bad word. I don't know if that like what you know Freud would have to say about that, but I you know, it's not like I could. It sounds say infantilized. 
it sounds, you know, it sounds like your daughter's underwear. Yeah, it sounds weird. It sounds strange. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with that. Okay, so you are a new mother. Uh-huh. Uh relatively. I'm, I'm a relatively new father. How's that going for you? <laughs> um, I hated having a baby for the first few months. Like we thought we made a big mistake <laughs> and I would say to my boyfriend, you know, what's kind of the cutoff for the um fire station drop off? <laughs> and then and then also it'll make you nuts. I don't know if you had this experience, but people keep telling you, you know, you're going to be so in love. Like you're going to love this thing. Like you never loved anything. Aren't you so in love? And everyone asks you that. And I didn't have that experience. I, I was attached to her from the beginning, but I wasn't crazy in love with her from the beginning. Right. And so people kept wanting to hear that I was in love and acting like I was really weird. (laughs) And when I wouldn't say I was in love with her at like eight weeks, I remember one friend goes, Oh, it happens at 10. It happens at 10. <laughs> and then 10 happened. And I still wasn't in love with her. Um, so I, I always say, I, I feel like I really started liking her a lot at four months. And then I kind of like fell in love with her at six months. But it took that long. Well, you know, um, I don't know. Did you feel like that? Like well, when they popped out, were you just enamored? I was really excited. I mean, listen, it's kind of different for the guy too. I mean, we don't have to do, yeah. we don't have to do quite as much. So, um, for me, it was just, you know, those first five months, it's, it's a big blur, uh, because you're up like four, I mean, especially if you're nursing, it's like crazy. You know, I didn't, yeah. I didn't realize how much of a burden nursing a child is for a woman, you know, p- women who do this for two years or three years, like that to me seems completely insane. <laughs> I don't know me how, too. I don't me know how, too. I don't know how people do that, but um, you know, my wife didn't do that. Like she, you know, she nursed for a while, but then it was like uh, I can't, you know, can't. Yeah, do this. yeah. Um, no. You so, want to put on a normal bot at some point. Yeah, at some point. So um, you know, the first few months, because of the constant feeding, and you're up three times a night or four times a night. It's just like it's, I don't even remember it, you know. And you're not getting that yeah. much. You're not getting that much back from the kid. The kid's just no. feeding. But once the kid becomes interactive, even just with like laughing or smiling, then then the fun starts. Yeah, I think that's my big thing because I always have trouble kind of bonding and connecting with people. Like even when I was dating my boyfriend and he moved in with me. I used to roll over in the middle of the night and just wake him up and be like, you're a stranger, you need to leave. Because (laughs) I just have this anxiety about not knowing people. And so when I had the baby, you just really, it's impossible to know them on any level because they're just such blank slates. And so I feel like I only really took to her when she started showing her personality. So you said you you have trouble feeling like you know people or bonding to people? Yeah. Like, what is that? Yeah. What is that about? Let's talk about that. Because, <laughs> no, I've had like a similar phase in my life recently where um, I, I'm questioning like what friendship means and like how many friends do I really have? Do you know what I'm saying? And like, well, do people really give a shit about me? And do I really give right. a shit about them? And like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, and it's like the, you, have, I do. you have these like mental fantasies where it's like if I died, like how many people in the world would really lose sleep over it? And it's like maybe just like three or four. <laughs> you know? like, totally. Like, I mean, are you a social person in that you make plans with people and you have friends that you see or it's not, not like easily. virtual friendship? Well, I mean, yeah. it's hard. I mean, it, once, you, once you have a kid, it gets hard because you we've got to take care of the child at night. And like then you get to the end of the day and it's like I don't want to go to a party. You know, like I want right. to sit here and like watch The Walking Dead and like drink wine. But um, – 
you know, oh, that feels horrible. I've been I, listen. I don't watch any series television or really, okay. and, and yet I'm trying, like, or at least pondering, like, the dream of how nice it would be to have a steady paycheck and write for a TV show. So yeah. I'm, I'm like, okay, let me just. I got to start ingesting this stuff and like keeping up with what's getting everybody excited. And um, okay, so The Walking Dead. I'm like, I, I hear about this on the internet or whatever. I need to check it out. And so I've watched the first two seasons in the past like week. And, oh wow! Yeah, so it's just been like a complete forced diet, and you know it's it's dramatic and it's you know there's good violence and there's real stakes or whatever. But the, the thing that bothers me is that the the main characters have this like six year old son or eight year old son or whatever. Yeah. And every episode, they're like losing track of him. Like, where did he go? <laughs> it's like, listen, people, you live in a zombie apocalypse. Like, your one job is to keep that kid like two feet from you. You know, don't let him right. go, go like play in the woods with a knife. And you know, it's just. It's bananas. So it's a little bit frustrating on that level, but I understand that they have dramatic responsibilities as show creators to like put their characters in danger, you know, every episode. Well, well yeah, that's what I find distracting. I don't, you probably, since you don't watch that much TV, watch um, Breaking Bad. I've seen it. I've a, seen it. I'm trying to get it's into It's a better that. show. Yeah, The Walking Dead. But they have a child, like an infant, and, you know, he's like running around making mess, and the mom is like, constantly busy and this child never makes a peep and it's so easy for them to incorporate this infant into their mess making <laughs> and once i had a baby i was just like you would get completely distracted from your mess making if you had this infant because it's just much more of a full-time job they really just throw this baby around they give her to their like sister-in-law for a minute to take care of it's just not realistic. It really bothers me. <laughs> it's like there's no possible way you could be making this quality of meth. Well, well I feel like they ha they had to address it at some point because I think it was last season. Some character said, you know, your baby is really good. Like, you have the best baby in the world. And they said, we know, we know. <laughs> like someone on the writing staff was like, we have to address <laughs> how weirdly good this baby is. It was clearly like a woman just back from maternity leave or something. It was like, listen, yeah. we've completely fucked this up. <laughs> Um, this is a glaring error. Anyway, so about bonding with people. Right. So you like don't go out that much anymore, but at some previous incarnation in your life, felt like you were a social person. L let me let me put it to you this way: like if I'm in a social environment, I think people who know me would say you're very social and you love people and you're good with people. Yeah. Like I, I'm not like a hermit. I'm not like a completely explicit introvert, but I am right. one of those people who like when I go to a party. And I spend all night socializing. Like when I come home, I'm exhausted. I'm not like charged up. Yeah. For it. So I think that's a sign of introversion where like, what, you know, introverts can be social people. It's just yeah. that, like it completely drains me to be around human beings. <laughs> I know exactly how you feel, but I think you're kind of one step better in that you can actually do it. Whereas like I just always, even after I you know, agreed to come talk to you. I was just saying to my boyfriend, like, why do I fucking agree to talk to people? Like, I don't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> so right. it's always like that. You know, whenever I accept an invitation for a birthday or something, I immediately regret it. And then I try to get out of it. I, I try to get out of plans all the time, basically. But this idea of, you know, not being able to bond or connect with people, I think I'm just such an interior person that, I can't have a conversation, especially at a party or at any kind of like big dinner or something without constantly having this running monologue in my head underneath what's actually going on. Um, 
And I think that really gets in the way of feeling like, yeah, I'm really like hitting it off with this person because you're just talking to yourself kind of. So what is that? Like, the, cause I do the same thing. I don't know if I do it maybe to the degree that you do. I mean, it, how, how can we know, you know, but it, right. like, what is that? Is that like a, is that a form of like self involvement? Do you know what I'm saying? Is it an ego thing? <laughs> like we can't get out of our own heads. I'm sure it's a degree of narcissism. Like I find myself a little too interesting probably. Um, and then I think it's also just certain people are observatory, you know, and then certain people are immersive. And I just think I spend a lot of time kind of observing, well, what's this other person's face doing? How does this other person sort of seem nervous or how does this other person seem uncomfortable? And that to me is almost more interesting than kind of what we're discussing. Um, Like I lose interest in small talk incredibly quickly. And then I kind of fixate on behaviors or what's really going on at the surface. So like, maybe it's hard to connect with people when you're just hyper aware of all of that stuff. It just really gets in the way. Well, that's right. Well, I mean, so much of it is surface level stuff. And so it gets boring quickly. And I'm, I don't know, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like I, 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 for some reason I was thinking back to college cause maybe that was the most hyper social time of my life. Yeah. Uh, there was always like so much subtext, you know what I'm saying? And I couldn't, like, right. I could not untangle myself from the subtext because I felt like that was closer to the truth than what was actually happening like externally in the room. Do you know what I'm saying? Always, always. And my best friendships, which people think are really weird. My very best friend is a guy named Jeff and he's kind of an introvert too. And we only have a need to see each other. Maybe, I don't know, twice, three times a year, even (laughs) though he lives, he lives 10 minutes from me. But what we've had going on since, God, when 2002 is we write these incredibly long, detailed emails to each other. And it used to be every day, um, sometimes more than once a day. But, you know, since I had the kid and stuff, it's kind of down to once a week. No, it's text messages. Um, No text messages, like (laughs) incredibly long. If you printed them out, I would say each email is probably 10 to 20 pages. Um, and if you were to combine all of our emails that we've written each other over this past decade, it would be a humongous, humongous book. Um, and we're really close, you know, but we don't see each other and we don't hang out. We don't talk on the phone. Um, and so that seems kind of bizarre to people. And I kind of have that relationship with my other friend, Starly, too, where she's in New York, but it's an email friendship, but we're fairly close. Um, and those are the people who are closest to me. You know, what gets weird too, is when like somebody lives in New York and you live in Los Angeles and then you have friends in Los Angeles, but you actually see the friends that live in New York more often in the course of a year right. than the friends that you don't know what I'm saying. Do you have friendships like that? Where yeah. like, I have friends that yeah. will come into town for business from other cities and I will see them in a, in a calendar year more often than I will see close friends of mine who actually live in the same city as I do. Because maybe you don't feel that obligation. Like if you saw the friend in Los Angeles, you feel like you're setting up some kind of thing where, you know, we have to have dinner every once in a while. But if someone's just in, you know, they're leaving and it's comfortable. Right, right. Well, so do do you ever feel guilty for not being social enough? Like, do you ever go out and like have dinner with friends and then you go, that wasn't so bad. Why don't I do that more often? Do you do that? No, I don't do that. You don't. Um, I no, I feel an incredible sense of guilt all the time because, um, I realize that I'm not holding up my end of the bargain in terms of 
you know, people try to make plans with me and I won't try to make plans with them back or, um, you know, I'll go over to their house and I can kind of tolerate about an hour of hanging out. And then my best friend Jeff says it's like a clock goes off in my head and he can see it in my eyes. And it's just like something inside of me went ding, ding, ding. I've got to leave. I've got to get up and go. <laughs> so I always feel terrible that I'm, you know, ducking out of conversations too early or I'm trying to get people out of my house who are visiting too early, um, which is nice. Again, when you have kids, like after I had the baby, I could just tell people flat out, look, we're really tired. Like you can come over for an hour, but I don't think we can take more than that. And then people <laughs> would watch the clock, an hour would be up, and then they'd leave. And I kind of love that. That's You just got to keep having kids, I guess. You know, you got to have an answer. <laughs> you got to keep having a baby. <laughs> oh, boy. I don't think so. Yeah. But it, it'll hold, I think, until toddlerhood. So we probably have what? three or four years of this excuse. Well, but to see, but get, this is what gets, this is what's starting to make me nervous lately is that like now the kid is in like pre-K, my daughter is, she's two and a half. And so then you're taking them to school and then there's like play dates and then there's all these other teacher, you know, school parents and like, you just, Uh. you get entangled and like, I'm telling you, like I've never had panic attacks in my life, but I think, I think one is coming. Like they just... It, like the whole uh, school thing in Los Angeles makes me completely crazy. Like getting your yeah. kid into school and where do they go? And this school district sucks and you've got to pay for private school and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, that alone, that conversation alone, just talking about it now, I'm starting to sweat a little bit. And then, I know. And then it's like you go to these, you know, functions and it's like all the, I mean, talk about small talk. Holy shit. You know, it's very <laughs> difficult. It's very difficult. And the people are nice. You know, it's not that the people aren't good people it's That's just worse though yeah it's like you know yeah, i feel bad about myself but i think this is the thing i think that a lot of the parents feel exactly the same way and so you're all standing there and i think you're all in the same boat and maybe some of the parents don't have quite as much of an aversion to it as i do but you know you you can't you can't really extricate yourself from it and then your kid needs to play your kid needs friends so you have to meet the other parents and hopefully you meet some good ones and you make some friends but there's no, there's no way of avoiding it unless your kid happens to be like, you know, hermetic too. <laughs> I'm, I'm dreading it. I'm completely dreading it. Like even when I went to a birthday party for a toddler when I was pregnant and sort of all the other like mothers swarmed when I was pregnant and it was kind of like, oh, here's one of us, you know, she's about to be in the club. And so, you know, again, the subtext thing of watching people's faces, it starts out and you can see they're really bright eyed and really open to you and really excited about you. Maybe this is a person we can make play dates with. Maybe this is a person in our future. And then as I talk and, you know, I think sometimes I have um, a way of talking that perhaps isn't very positive or isn't very cheery. And then it's like, you know, the eyelids come down and you see people withdrawing and it's like, Oh, I don't want my kid around this lady's kid. Um, So I just see a lot of that occurring in the future. Yeah. It's like, you know, you just have to find your tribe. It's just might be a small tribe. Like I haven't, my wife has taken the brunt of it. I gotta be honest. Like she does most of that stuff. Yeah. For us. But like, there's going to just, there's, there's going to come a time where I have to like deal, you know, and you know, you got to do it on behalf of the kid. And I'm sure it's not as bad as like, I'm building it up in my head to be, but I have a tendency to like build. (laughs) Right. Or else you just move to like the boondocks and you raise your kid running amongst, I don't know, the hay and climbing (laughs) trees and not seeing anyone. This is a particular fantasy of mine. Yeah, no, I have that fantasy too. So 
you know, we both are sort of in the same boat. We live in Los Angeles, you know, and we should explain to listeners who don't have a, like a sense of the geography of Los Angeles that you're in Pasadena and I'm in like West Hollywoodish area. So that's quite, yeah. a, that's quite a drive. Plus with an infant, it's difficult to like travel. So it's not like, right. it's not like you're two blocks away and we're both so antisocial that we decided to do this over the phone. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like a big hurdle to get out the door and over to West Hollywood. Yeah. No, I mean, that's the other, you know, that's the other thing about socializing in this city is that you've got to get in the car and, you know, my, your friend lives in Santa Monica and it's like, you know, you're in the car for an hour just, just yeah. to get there. It's crazy. No, it's a really big obligation. I don't know. We have Skype playdates and just throw the babies in front of the computer and they can stare at each other. <laughs> That's not a bad idea. That's how we talk to grandparents, right? <laughs> it's good enough for them. Right. Exactly. Uh, so let's talk about uh, your, you know, where you're from and you know, where, where do you, uh, from where do you originate? I'm from Irvine, California, which for your non-California listeners is a planned community about an hour south of Los Angeles. And um, the Irvine company sort of set down these organized suburbs where it would be like, here's five houses that you have to choose from. There's going to be a pool every 20 houses. The neighborhoods are going to work in a circle. When you get to the end of the circle, there's going to be five churches. So it's very mapped out and very deliberate. It's like Disney. It's like kind of a Disneyfied suburb, something like Orange County suburb. I mean, is that a fair? Yeah. Yeah. Totally, totally fair. It's not as cute as I think. Like, I know Disneyland opened Celebration Florida, which I've seen pictures of, and it looks completely surreal. Yeah. Um, terrifying. It's a little bit more mute. Yeah. It's, well, terrifying and super fun. But um, Irvine is a little bit more muted because it sprang up in kind of like the late 70s, early 80s. So it's kind of all like nature colored and stuff. So your parents moved you guys there when you were a young child? Yeah, interestingly enough, from Anaheim, we lived next to Disneyland. Oh, you did? Um, okay. And so my mom started freaking out because we lived by this park in Anaheim, and it became kind of like a gang park. And I guess, I don't know if there was an actual shooting or she just started to fear there would be a shooting, but she just freaked out and moved us to Irvine, which is one of continually the safest cities in the nation whenever the news does those surveys. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's like next to no crime. There's, it's a fairly, yeah, it's a, it's a, just a sedate, it's lovely. I mean, you know, there's lots of trees and I'm, I'm familiar with Irvine, but, uh, what was it like? Like, do you look back and have like a warm relationship with your hometown or is it like most people where you look back and you're like, God, I'm so glad I got out of there. I have a warm relationship with it in the sense that I think it's a really uncanny, strange place. Um, and in that sense, I think it's responsible a lot for maybe some of the things I'm interested in and certain creative impulses because it's so organized, you know, like sometimes I get the feeling, and this is another thing that connects back to having children. There's all these kids in LA that are our friends, kids, and they're getting sent to these really special privatized schools. And they're like, Oh, the curriculum is so exploratory and we're not having them take tests. We're having them like tell us their feelings, <laughs> which in one sense sounds really great, but in another sense, like, I really like limits for creativity. And so I sort of think if you lack structure and you lack things you hate and you lack things to come up against, you kind of end up having nothing to say. Um, and so in that way, I think Irvine was kind of a useful place to grow up because it's bizarre. It's, it's a super bizarre, organized suburb um, and definitely 
gave me things to think about. Well, it's a politically conservative area, Orange County. Like yeah. the, the demographics, like this is what people don't realize because I think people uh, tend to associate like uh, hyper-social conservative or hyper-Christian conservative politics and um, – you know, culture with like the middle of the country or the South. And, you know, obviously that's certainly true in places, but like, I think Orange County is, um, in terms of like per capita donorship, like it is the place for yeah. the cultural conservative movement in the country. There's more money and more mega churches and, you know, all that stuff happening there than anywhere else in the country. Completely. It's a lot of Republicans. Um, and I think people are drawn to it for the same reasons, sort of, certain people might be drawn to tea party stuff, which is that they're scared of something. And so they want to move to this place where everything's controlled. And, you know, you know, your neighbor is going to take care of their lawn because if they don't take care of their lawn, they're going to be shunned. So <laughs> it's true. Like when we wanted to put up a basketball um, hoop for my brother, you have to first go to the association, which sounds weirdly not Republican because it sounds like government intruding in your life. Right. But um, somehow this fits into the ideals of the people who live there, that you would have this association that you all agree to the aesthetics of way thing, ways things should look. And so you choose your backboard of your basketball from a list because certain colors will be approved. And then you have to go around to your neighbors and you have to get them to sign off on the backboard that you've chosen. Um, and the same thing if you want to paint your house or you want to do any kind of landscaping. So I think it really appeals that mindset of a person who wants kind of one kind of thing and everything to like look really organized and the same. That's interesting. So what was your family like? Are your parents super conservative or were you, were you guys like kind of outliers in that environment? And, and then what kind of kid were you in that environment? My dad was a Republican, um, but he was never kind of socially conservative. He just like never wanted any of his money taken away. That was the thing. Don't take any of my money. Right. Um, and then my mom, who knows what my mom is. My mom, again, I think is pretty socially liberal, like supports gay marriage, um, all of that. But again, nervous about money and very nervous outside of Irvine, likes things to be sort of orderly and the same. So, you know, a little bit of a mix of probably like California liberal culture in terms of the way they look at people and then very conservative in the way they look at money. Um, and I grew up super liberal because I can't bring myself to even care for a second what other people are doing. Um, again, <laughs> the, the narcissism. Um, and so I was sort of, I don't know, a little bit weird, a little bit creative. And then when I hit high school, I was just full-blown goth. Um, and so I dressed in all black and all of that. And Bizarrely enough, which I can't sort of reconcile, my mom was cool with it, which I don't understand why she was. Okay, so let's let's dig into that because this fascinates me. Like, what is? Can, can you unpack goth at like the adolescent stage for a girl? <laughs> what is it? What what yeah. caused it? Like, how do you make that decision? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, where does it begin? I told. Yeah, I I know the moment. Um, again, here we are back at my lack of social ability. Coming up in elementary school. Um, I hung out with a group of girls. And then once we got to middle school, what happened was the various groups of girls from elementary schools would conglomerate into a mega group of girls. And so I found myself in seventh and eighth grade 
having to eat lunch in this circle of about, I think it was 30 girls, 30 to 40 girls. Um, and like you, I would just come home completely exhausted. Like it was destroying me. Um, but there was no elegant way to kind of chop off from this massive group without doing something drastic. So when I got to high school, I felt this need to sort of like withdraw and be more private and not have so many people to be responsible for in my life. And so I started wearing all black and it worked really, really well. Um, and you know, I had on like the long velvet skirt and the heavy eyeliner and the black lipstick and (laughs) I got the nickname dark star. Um, and so, you know, certain people who had previously been comfortable with me became uncomfortable and this was sort of a relief for me, as, as bad as that sounds. You were like, good riddance. Maybe that's what I, I should start just dressing in uh, all black, you know. <laughs> you might lose a couple people. I'm going to go to the, I'm going to go to the, you know, the pre-K functions and like the play dates, just like looking, Look, looking like the lead singer of The Cure and just see what happens. It will freak out other parents, that's for sure. <laughs> that's actually not a bad idea. It'd be sort of funny. It's really not. Um, yeah. Okay, so you're in high school, you're goth, your mom is cool with it. Uh, have you ever asked her why? No. I, like, I talk about this all the time, but my parents always had the very weird quality of never discussing anything, never discussing their pasts, never telling stories, never analyzing anything. So we've never discussed it. I guess I could ask her. Um, but she would take me shopping and buy me like my 20-hole Doc Martens, which is very strange for her because <laughs> she's very image-oriented. So... Um... What do your folks do? Like, are they, they're not, they're not creative people. I would take it. Like, are you like an anomaly or? Um, I'm dead now, but he was a financial consultant. So he was Winston Young. Um, I'm sorry. And again, very money oriented. I'm so sorry. You, you, you were breaking up just then. Oh, sorry. Um, well, I just delivered the happy news that my dad dead, and he used to be a financial consultant. So he worked for Winston Young, um, I'm yeah. I'm I'm so sorry, but like this, the the connection just got weird. Your dad. I'm I'm so sorry to hear about your dad. And then your mom you said, <laughs> you're, "Like what the what a terrible." I, I love this exactly <laughs> at the moment when you deliver the really depressing news, it starts getting garbled. Yes. So and then your mom was essentially she was a teacher, but then she was stay at home. Is that right? Yeah, she stayed at home once she had us. Okay. And so did you like? You don't have any kind of like lineage of creativity that you can trace in your family. Not really. My mom could draw. Um, she has that ability. But other than that. So where did you come from? <laughs> um, <laughs> this has been a topic of conversation before. My brother and I are both very strange children to have come from our parents. And so you have to look at both of us and say, well, if two kids came from these people that are saying like the way they are raised, maybe it's something about the way they are raised. It's a reaction against thing, you know, like maybe it's a reaction against having lived my life in Irvine and had sort of this family that really, really cared about appearances and really wanted to kind of like toe that middle line. Um, Cause my brother got a little weird too. So what did, what did he do? Seemed, what was his thing? He's just like, you know, coming from Irvine, again, everyone kind of is staunchly upper middle class. Um, 
and interested in having nice things and looking nice. And my brother is just incredibly anti-materialistic. Like he went to the Peace Corps. Um, he's really interested in sort of small pockets of the universe that other people aren't interested in. And like he's where? really not. Like where? Like, what, like what, what's a small pocket of the universe? You know, I don't even know what the nation of his current interest is, but he teaches in Washington. He's a math teacher. And I believe there's some heavy concentration of a small um, islander community in this rural town in Washington. Um, and he's very, very invested in sort of those kids and their backgrounds and helping them succeed. But which sounds like, you know, like, oh, that's a nice thing. That's a nice, normal thing. But coming from where I'm from, it's not a nice, normal thing because, you know, people coming out of Irvine, I don't think are especially like worldly or driven to get out of Irvine. A lot of people stay in Irvine. Um, it's a really comfortable place to live. You kind of have everything that you ever need within a mile radius of your house. So just like the sheer fact that he went into the Peace Corps is sort of unconventional. Well, I mean, you know, there's like this, I mean, I guess this materialism and obsession with nice things, you know, it's, it seems very LA. Maybe it just seems very American in certain classes or whatever it is, but that's another thing that's been like in my brain that I keep trying to untangle, but I can't. And it's like when you look around at people and maybe you feel differently or maybe you feel the same, but when I look around and I see these people just completely indulging themselves in the Mercedes Benz SUV, the $2,000 handbag and you know, the extremely expensive clothes and the five-star hotel vacations. It's like, I don't want to begrudge somebody like nice things. I mean, it's, I guess nice things in and of themselves aren't bad, but I look around the world at all the shit that's happening and how bad people are suffering. And it just seems, it can seem perverse to me after a yeah. while. Like, what are you doing? Like, what if you took like, I don't know, you, then you start getting into people's business and it's like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to compute all that. There's just, a, it just, to me, it seems like a big problem that doesn't get talked about enough. And if you start to bring it up, People are like, don't get into my business. You know, like, I like nice things. Fuck right. you. Or, you know, I do, I do things for charity right. on the other side. But I don't know. It just seems like it seems like a sickness to me. There's something about it makes the alarm bells inside of me go off. I don't know how to fix it or what to call it even. But it, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I was reading David Mamet's controversial editorial in Newsweek yesterday, um, and you the know, one, he's the one become, about guns. Yeah, he's become weirdly conservative. And he was arguing, like, who are you to say what people need? You know, you look at someone's 10 mansions and you say they don't need it. But how do you know? And I'm like, I do. I do know that you don't need 10 houses. Um, And I don't think that's a legitimate argument that inside this person's internal disposition, they cannot be happy without 10 houses. It's just at a certain point, um, keeping up with it seems incredibly stressful to me. Like, I'm, I'm a big television watcher. And uh, I watched the Real Housewives franchise. And when Kelsey Grammer's wife and uh, him were divorcing, she was like, oh, we have to unload the house in Aspen and we have to like do something about the house in Malibu. And then we have this property in Hawaii. And it just gave me heart palpitations thinking about keeping up those properties and what it means to have all these empty houses for part of the year. I guess it's enjoyable to 
certain people, to me, it would just add more complications to my life. Well, and it's also that, but then it's like, I'm walking around my neighborhood and I'm like stepping over homeless people. It's like, yeah, there's there's that. There's something obnoxious about like having an empty house in Hawaii. And then there's just people have like literally eating out of garbage cans. Like, I know. I I don't know how to, you know, what do you do? I mean, I guess if you want a house in Hawaii, ugh, it just, it makes me very confused to be a human being to like, I know, think about that. That's my big confusion is, especially with kind of the Republican keep your mitts off my stuff mindset is, would you rather have the extra house or would you rather be able to step outside your door and not feel terrible? Um, And I'd I'd rather step outside my door, be able to walk down the street and not have these heart pangs of just like, so that's me, but who knows? Right, right, right. So, um, so you get out of high school and you're goth when you graduate, are you a graduating uh, yeah, gra- so you're, you're... I graduate a goth. Okay. <laughs> I I head to Brown University, still goth. Um, so good, lived... so good student. Very good student. <laughs> um, I was. I'm just really like anal retentive about school and getting straight A's, and I'm the gold star kind of girl. Like you're handing out gold stars, I want them. Um, so went to school. My roommate ended up being sort of like a a witchy little girl, um, very strange. And so we kind of like scared the whole floor. They thought we were up to something really bizarre between the two of us. (laughs) How did you guys wind up together? (laughs) The magic of brown residency matching. Uh, Yeah, I I was going to say. I couldn't tell you. Um, But she was, you know, like she's an artist. And so she was drawing kind of like naked, decrepit people all day. And then I'm walking around in like a cape. So, you know, (laughs) it was really, (laughs) it was a good match at the time. Um, But we did have a falling out because, again, I end up with all these dirty people. She was just a filthy, filthy girl. Um, And so at one point I had a lizard freshman year. That was my pet. And he died and then he disappeared. And I found him later in her desk drawer, among other things. So wait, so she, that, she, she killed your lizard or she, no, just, she just took the corpse and held on to it. Um, there was just the big, the really big fallout happened when she had a poetry final and you didn't have to write a poem. You could make a sculpture, you could do whatever you wanted. So she built a bird cage. And then when I was away for the weekend visiting my boyfriend at the time, she put like dog shit in the bird cage. And then she just left, um, figuring, you know, my project will be here for Monday when I need to take it into class. So I came home to dog shit in a cage in our room and was pretty upset about that. And that was it. Well, no, that wasn't it, but that was the beginning <laughs> of the end. <laughs> there was more. If dog shit in a bird cage, isn't the deal breaker, you know, like what, what eventually like, did you, do you, you guys had like a big confrontation? Um, it's such a long story, but she ended up taking up with this guy who I could not stand, um, who would get really, really drunk and kind of really obnoxious and abusive. And, uh, one night she came, this was the next year, this was sophomore year. And she came to my dorm room pounding on the door and she said, I need to stay with you tonight. He's going to kill me. And I was like, "Of, of course you can stay here. Right. And she says, I'm just going to go get a snack at the snack shop, and then I'll be right back. So she never reappears. 
but he does. And he starts pounding on my door and he's like, I'm going to kill you, bitch. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to kick in your teeth. And he was just yelling these things at me from the door and he wouldn't go away. So I had to call security on him because he was literally threatening my life. And so she never showed up all night and I was so terrified for her. And I thought he'd found her and killed her and her body was stuffed somewhere on the Brown campus. Um, and then the next morning, I was getting up and I was walking to class and I see the two of them walking across the main green with their arms around each other. And they look at me and they're like, Oh, Hey Andrea, good morning. <laughs> and like, uh, you two are dead to me. Um, and then they, they were really something. They tried to woo me back together. So in one of my classes, they were very eccentric and they, they whittled a little car out of wood and in one of my classes, they rolled this car across the floor to me as kind of a gift. Um, but it was just very, you know, not the right moment for it. Someone's lecturing up front. There's this little wooden car rolling across the floor. And then she made me a heart out of her hair. She she wound it around wire and was leaving that on my door. Um, but <laughs> we, we never recovered. It is gross. Yeah. <laughs> really grossed out. I'm grossed out by hair when it's not on the head. Me too. Me too. I don't want anything to do with hair at all. And yeah. like, that's just, no. like nothing is more disgusting than somebody making me like something from their own hair. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the other big thing about her. This, this freshman year when we were still getting along, she wouldn't brush her hair for long periods of time and she wouldn't shower for long periods of time. And so she would get these big nests in her hair and then um, I would tell her after about a month, you need to go shower. You know, it's getting kind of gross. And she would shower and then she would leave. And someone else on the floor would come to me and say, we just found these gigantic nests of hair in the shower. Because when she finally shampooed, they would come out and, you know, there's like a forest on the shower floor. Can you come do something about this? Because we can't find her. And so, you know, this had been building for a while. There was a whole bunch of sort of incidents. Uh, and so what happens, uh, to you as like a student at Brown? Like, what are you, are you studying writing? Cause you published your first book when you were 22, right? Yeah. So what, um, what is happening to you? Like, are you, you're already nursing literary ambitions when you're a student? Nursing. Um, kind of, kind of not. Cause my parents were such like financial conservatives that I didn't think writing was an actual career, you know, like thought you had to work in an office or you just didn't have any reason to be working. So um, I was an MCM major, which is modern culture and media. It's essentially semiotics. And I think I had some idea that I would go work in development for television, or I would just work behind the scenes at a studio, but definitely an office job. Are you there? Yeah, did it drop me again? No, no, no. I was just, I was just wondering if you had anything to add. You just thought you were going to work in development, and um, yeah, and that was it. So you got you majored in that, but you weren't you weren't like writing daily or working on no it. nothing like. that. I mean, I I took a fiction workshop, and so I wrote a few short stories, um, and I took a screenwriting workshop and wrote half of a screenplay, but it didn't seem at all realistic to me. So um, when did it change? I, what happened? Okay. So I graduated and I had a boyfriend at the time who was at Columbia Film School. And he said, come live with me in New York and we'll be together. And I was like, I can't do that. So I went back to LA and then he called me maybe a month after I returned to LA and he said, oh, I have a new girlfriend and I've moved her into my dorm room. And so I said, I'm coming to New York. So I got on a plane (laughs) 
and I showed up and I showed up, it was like September 2nd, 2001. Good time. And wonderful timing. So I'm living in an apartment with no natural sunlight and my boyfriend has moved this girl into his dorm room and I'm completely depressed and I have no job. Um, and then the world trade center attacks happen and it becomes really impossible to find a job. So, so where, where were up, you? Where were you when that happened? I was like Gramercy park area at 23rd and third. Okay. Um, so it was just an incredibly depressing time. Um, and I was interning at a soap opera called as the world turns, which has now <laughs> been canceled. Yeah. And I was so depressed that, like I said, I've always been a gold star kind of person. Um, and always like, you know, you can really count on me. I'll never fuck things up. And I was fucking things up right and left. And as the world turns, I was sending the wrong scripts to the wrong actors. And I wasn't telling people their correct call times. And I got called in by the producer. And she was like, you have to stop coming. <laughs> You're making our lives harder. Um, and so I knew something was super, super wrong with me. Um, and so I headed back to California, but before I left, I went to the Central Park Zoo and I saw the Red Panda exhibit. Um, and there was a sign that said, you know, the Red Pandas don't really come out. So you can stand here and look for them, but odds are you're not going to see them because they hide. And for whatever reason, like a complete book just leapt into my head kind of based on this image. Um, and so I started just making notes on the subway and then I moved back to California, took a job and started writing the first book at night based on this original inspiration of having seen the red pandas. Um, and it got written super quick. It's like, you know, one of the few experiences I've had where it was just seamless. I sat down, I wrote two pages every night. I didn't edit. And, um, that was the first book that came out when I was 22. Wow. Okay. So you, but did you, did you actually see the red pandas or no, you didn't see them. You I never see... did. Okay. So, but you're standing. They never there. came out. I want to deconstruct this moment because this is fascinating <laughs> to me. Like you say that like a full book leapt into your mind at that moment, like describe that for real. Like, what do you mean by that? I mean, like I'm standing waiting for these red pandas to come out. Everyone is just standing, staring at this exhibit that is empty. You know, it's got some trees, but we're not looking at any animals. And we're so hopeful that this animal is going to appear, even though the sign is warning us, don't get your hopes up. Um, and I guess this is kind of connected to this idea that you and I were talking about of being able, unable to really ever know people to ever really like drag them out to ever be able to see them clearly. Like all of that just sort of really started resonating with me in this image of the red pandas. And I was just standing there and I thought, I really want to write a book about a girl who's going to commit suicide, but she's not committing suicide for the reasons that you usually hear about like something terrible has happened in her life or, you know, sort of an incident has triggered it. It's just more that she has, this way of seeing the world in kind of a too deliberate way, meaning that thing I talk about where when you're talking to someone, you like see what their eyebrows are doing, or when you're walking around a city, all you can see is the way that the city has been planned out. Like you can't lose yourself in it. You think about all the intention behind it. Um, and the red panda thing sort of triggered all of that because it just made like the idea of an exhibit and looking for something and going for a specific person to see something seems stupid in that moment, um, which 
seem to me a, a larger issue that I have of walking through life sort of wanting things to be presented to me in a certain way and just like having trouble finding the core of them. So when you found yourself finally writing this book, like suddenly you're, you know, you're working a day job and then you're coming home at night and working on it. Were you surprised? I mean, if you didn't have like, or, or was it something like you're like, this has been building for a long time and I'm not that surprised. Um, I wasn't surprised. Like I was just doing it. You know, like I, it was such routine. I, I literally came home every night and wrote exactly two pages and turned the computer off. Um, and so it was just like, I'm going to finish this. This is something I'm going to do. And then I was surprised when I went back and read it and I actually thought it was good and it hung together. That really surprised me because I sort of thought maybe, you know, I would have this rough draft and then figure out if I could do anything with it. And when I read it and I saw that, like, oh, it's a book, that really surprised me that it actually made sense. So it's like almost like an accident or not an accident, but sort of, you know, like. Yeah, that's it, it is. I mean, you know, it kind of fucked me up because I had the expectation from there of everything I ever worked on that it should spring out of my head fully formed. But it was just kind of, I don't know, that rare thing of it all just unspooled. Okay. So then what? You're 21 at this point? When I finished the book. Yeah. How old were you? Um, oh, no, I, I'm 22 when I finished the book. So I finished the book at 22 and get the contract at 22 and then it comes out when I'm 24. Okay. So how did you get the contract? Like how did that process go? Um, I just blind queried agents. Like I bought an agent book from Barnes and Noble and just started writing to them. Um, and then the agent who took me was literally the only person who wanted the book. Um, and then she sold it to my editor really quickly. And my editor was literally the only editor that wanted that book either. So it just takes one. That's the thing that I think people sometimes misperceive is that, you know, there, there are instances where there's an auction and it's like this rabid sales process right. where there's like 50 different suitors. But most often it's just like one editor at one house who really responded and that's how it works. Yeah. I think you forget that they're people because it seems like this gigantic monolith and this publishing thing and they only want twilight and they only want it to fit into one thing, but it's really just like the same as you or I, when you pick up a book, um, if something really just connects with you, then you want it. You want to be a part of it. And that's, I think how editors are too. Um, even if maybe it doesn't seem like the most commercial subject matter, if you can kind of tap into someone's interests or their worldview, they'll get excited about it. Right. So, so you get the news that this book is sold. You're 22 years old. You must've been thinking like, this is going to be a good, a good ride. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I walked into my boss's office and quit my job as soon as I got the email. I was working at the Disney channel. Um, so I just got up from my desk and I was like, here's my two weeks notice, even though I shouldn't have, I really should. It wasn't enough money that I should have been doing that. Um, but I thought I'm set, you know, I'll just write another book. This is going to be so easy. (laughs) So then what? Um, I quit. I start writing my second novel, which is way harder to write. I turn it into my agent. She's like, no, (laughs) not good. Um, and so I panic at that point and I take a job as a nanny because I realize that, you know, the second sale isn't going to become, come to me as easily as I thought it was. And so for the next couple of years, I kind of nannied and wrote until I sold that second book with some rehauling. 
Okay. And so nannying, that seems like a strange job. I mean, I'm thinking like goth nanny or something like that, you know, was, or were you emerging, right. were you emerging from goth phase at this point or no? Yeah. I, I'm not goth anymore at okay. this pace, okay. phase of my life. Um, and I have the good luck to end up with a family where the mom is sort of a really interesting wry person who sort of, you know, she doesn't hate her children, but she kind of hates having a child, um, same kind of situation that I've been through. So, you know, it's, it's not one of that mothers. That's like, why are you not cooing at my baby from 8am to 5pm daily? Just sort of like an eye rolling mom. And I really loved her. Um, where so was, I where with was them. this? Was this in Irvine or was this in LA? No, this is in LA. Okay. Um, and super cool mom. She, She's an architect. And so I stayed with them. The baby was six months old and I stayed with them till she was almost five, I think. Um, and became, you know, very close with them. And it was super hard to break off from them because I became, you know, that baby's best friend. Um, but again, as you and I were just talking about what kind of pushed me over the edge in that job was she hit an age where she was socializing with other kids and other mothers and it became kind of my job to take her to baby yoga and to take her to baby soccer. And so I'm sitting on the sidelines with these other parents and it just cracked me. I, I just couldn't have those conversations anymore. <laughs> that was it. You're like, sorry, kid, I'm done with you. I really couldn't. I was like, oh, I, I can't be a mother. You know, I can't be this person. So I want to talk to you about humor because this is a strong element of your creative work and your online presence and I mean, I feel like you're very funny. Do you feel like you're funny? Like, does that something? No. No. No, I don't. That's the thing. I have this conversation daily where sometimes I feel as if I used to be funny and I'm not funny anymore and I sink into a really deep depression about it. And then my boyfriend has to sit next to me and go, like, you're so funny. You're such a funny girl. <laughs> no, I'm not funny. Um, this happens all the time and it will happen every single time we go to a party where I'm like, I used to be funny. My, um, my wife says this to me. We have we have like we have this like running gag where she'll be like, "Yeah, I used to be funny," and I'll be like, "Wait a minute, like, what, what do you mean used to? Like before me, you were funny, and then like I've somehow like sapped the funny out of you." Like, what? did you? I don't. Is that know. what happened? I don't think so. But I mean, it's that's it's sort of a joke. You know, see what I'm saying? It becomes this joke where she's like, "Right, yeah, I used to be so funny." Because my wife is sort of like a wit, you know. Yeah. And uh, I think and like you get older and you get responsibilities and. You know, and you, you deadened that in her. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I feel horrible. Wow, that's that's heavy. <laughs> but you're, it sounds like you're saying the same thing to your boyfriend, where you're like, "I used to be funny. What happened to me?" You know. Yeah, I I definitely feel like maybe I was a little bit funnier before I met him. Like maybe <laughs> maybe being happy with him has stripped me of some of my funny. Um, but I don't feel like I'm funny. I mean, which is weird to say because again, like I feel humor is such an important part of good work. Um, and it's probably the thing I value most. And I, I will like not want to read anyone that doesn't have a sense of humor in the their same, work. In the exact same way. I think that, I think that, I mean, I, it's not that I've never read a novel that's super dark and heavy and kind of humorless that I haven't really loved. That has happened. You know, I've seen, yeah. movie, I've, seen I've seen dramatic movies that don't have very many laughs in them and I've liked them. So it's not completely a hundred percent black and white, but what I find is that when there's not an element of humor in a story, uh, and, and I'm not saying that it has to be like slapstick, all jokey, funny the whole time. I'm, you know, I, I, right. actually, I actually prefer the mixture where it's like 
dark and light, you know, and uh, yeah. I like dark humor and because I think that it most accurately reflects the way that I see the world or experience the world, you know, like yeah. it's all that stuff at once. And if you don't have any element of humor in it, then I feel like it's, I think there's something really noble and transcendent about humor, especially when it is happening in the context of something very dark and dreadful. <laughs> so do I, I think humor is the hardest thing in the world to do. And it's so weird to me that it gets overlooked as something inconsequential or something lesser than drama yes. when humor is really successful when it's kind of tapping into what you're talking about. It's tapping into sadness and death on top of being really funny. Like I think there's nothing better and nothing harder to do. And like, it's just how I live my life. Like when my dad was dying, he died of brain cancer and we had like a hospice situation, which was awful. You know, I watched my dad die, but almost every story I will tell out of that hospice week is a funny story. Not in the sense that like, I think I'm super funny telling it, but it's like funny because it's not the really awful stuff that happened. It's the more amusing stuff that happened. Yeah. Like, like what, like a convert, like a weird, like conf confused conversation with a nurse or, you know, like there's all sorts yeah, of, they, they just sent us a series of increasingly terrible hospice nurses. Um, and one of them like had been up all night and he was hungover. And my dad was sort of in this borderline waking coma where he was completely out of it. Cause we had him on morphine, but he was still like vomiting every once in a while. And so he would start to vomit and this nurse would kind of like put up his hands and take a step back and be like, Whoa, man. Whoa. You know? <laughs> and it, it's the nurse. And so my brother and I are getting the big salad bowl for my dad to puke into. And the nurse is over there in the corner, just really disgusted and grossed out. Um, and then they <laughs> sent over another guy who was a born again, Christian and we're Jews. So he decided to talk to me a little bit about Jesus while my dad's dying, you know, across the room from us. Um, and then he found out I was a writer and he's a poet and happily has memorized his entire poetic catalog. So oh, he God. started reciting poetry. I mean, just all this stuff to me is the more interesting stuff than kind of describing for you the experience of my dad, you know, uncomfortably, awfully dying. Oh, God. Yeah. And, you know, the thing, too, about those kinds of situations where you're you know, faced with the loss of a, a loved one is that. Like what I've found, at least in my experience with losing people, is that as awful as those times are, there's also this weird heightened aliveness thing that happens. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's really hard, you know, because I don't want to undercut the awfulness or, or minimize it. But it's like I've also found myself happier in some weird way in those moments or, or, or a feeling of connectedness with people or – Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Because it seems like something's really happening. Like something's happening that matters for once. Yeah. And it and it's like I don't – all of the other normal day-to-day -day bullshit fears about money and about career success or about relationships or about whatever the, you know, the static of our lives is on a day-to-day -day when there's nothing super heavy happening, all of that stuff sort of falls away. And it feels like you know, right. you know what's important and it's – it's a it's amazing that that's fleeting. Do you know what I'm saying? Like when you, right. when you consider the magnitude and the power of loss and confronting all that, you would think that it would be something you could hold, but you can't really. It's it's so crazy to me that way. You can't. And it was the same with having the baby. You know, like had the baby, big event. Oh my gosh, we had a baby. The next morning, I'm like, 
fuck, I have to get back to work. We're going to go broke. Like, how am I going to sell this TV show? It was over so fast sort of the awe and the magic of having the baby yeah yeah no it's like it's like these weird it's and it's like i think about you know i don't know if you ever think about this or like entertain these fantasies like something's gonna happen to me and it's gonna like i'm gonna finally wake up like i'm gonna finally i'm gonna finally like realize or achieve some sort of higher state or you know have an epiphany and it's gonna be something bad maybe or i'm you know what i'm saying like i i've actually i've actually sat there and been like I'm going to get sick, but I'm not going to die, but it's going to be a serious enough illness that it's going to like wake me up. Like you can't live like that though. I mean, like you can't live woken up. Yeah. It's like, you can't, I don't know. It's that dumb fucking thing of like live every day. Like it's your last. It's, it's, you know, one of these things that people like to throw around and you kind of wish for it because it's the same thing. Like when I was younger and I used to be in relationships, um, I wasn't happy in a relationship unless I was sort of causing a fight every single day um, and storming out of the house because that's when I felt most in love. So, you know, like throw the pots and storm out of the house and my boyfriend has to like run down the street and chase me and it felt so great, but you can't have a relationship like that. Um, And it's the same kind of thing I think with life. Like you want to constantly be able to value the people in your life as much as you know you should be valuing them and you want every day to be crystalline and sparkling and all of this, but like you can't, you just can't do it. It's like if you're going to be a normal functioning person, you, you can't be that awoken. Right. Right. It's sort of sad, you know? And like, I think like, uh, I think about people who do have like illnesses that they wind up recovering from and they have those you know, they've got to have like a period of like this, oh my God, I'm alive. I'm well again. And like, everything is greener and I'm seeing the world is in slow motion and blah, blah, blah. And then eventually like that recedes and you just go back to being yeah. like a no. fuck up. <laughs> I think, I think you get insight into that every time you're nauseous and you think like, I would give anything not to be nauseous. And then the nausea slips away without you even kind of recognizing it. And you just can't even remember what it was like to feel nauseous. I think that's most experiences in life. Well, yeah. Or like even like I, I remember I, I went to Israel last fall for book research, which was like it turned out to be like a, a trip that I didn't even <laughs> need to take. Just like talk about a calamity. But um, Jesus. yeah, so I thought that like part of this book that I was writing was going to take place in Israel. And I fly to Israel for like three nights just because I had to get back to the kid. And, you know, so it was just a long way to travel, but yeah, that's a long way. to travel. So I'm in like on these, like, you know, insane flights, you know, two within like 72 hours. And I have my uh, iPad and I've loaded up all these movies onto it so I can, you know, make the, the travel bearable. And I'm watching this Bob Marley documentary. Um, I love documentaries. I can watch like, endless, Me too. I can watch documentaries like just constantly. I could, you know, Me too. So, um, I'm watching this Bob Marley documentary, which actually, and I'm a, I do like Bob Marley's music a lot. Uh, I can't, yeah. you know, in, in doses, my wife hates <laughs> reggae, but I like it. I think that there's something beautiful. Do you have a poster it. in the bedroom? No, I don't. I do not. Okay. Then it's okay. <laughs> but, um, you know, when I was like in high school and there's a nostalgia thing, but, um, it did the movie actually made me like, it diminished my love a little bit, um, just because of the whole like religious culty thing around it. I didn't realize, yeah. I didn't realize how heavy that was in his life. Like he was, you know, there was some sort of weird like religion thing going on. But, um, anyway, I, you know, he died of, uh, this rare skin cancer. And so it's this sad story and he didn't really treat it. And, you know, that's part of the movie. So I get back from this trip and, uh, I look down at my thumb oh, God. And, and I see like this, like this stripe, you know, it's like a vertical stripe. 
Um, it's a little pink, but it's a little darker than pink. Do you know what I'm saying? And I'm mm-hmm. like, and so mm-hmm. then I, then I, st- then I start Googling shit and it's like, oh my God, like this is the Bob Marley skin cancer. And it's like, <laughs> it, like it, it occurs mostly in African American or Asian people, but like, you know, 1% of cases are like Caucasian. So there is a chance. Right. And I was like, oh my God. And then I started Googling, which is like a death trap. You know, it's just the worst yeah, thing you no. can do. And I'm looking at pictures and then I'm reading prognoses and in my head, I'm like, I am fucking dying. Like, this is it. And that's why I watched the movie. And it was, a, it was like all part of it. And it was like, you know, it was so yeah. that I could go get diagnosed. And like, I <laughs> set up an appointment with my dermatologist. And I went through like this phase where I was like, like looking at my daughter, like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know? You're going to leave her behind you and Bob Marley in the sky together. <laughs> right. And so then I go to my dermatologist and she's like, oh no, like you must've just like slammed it in something. And she was like, it's not, it's not. <laughs> it was literally like a, it was like a seven minute appointment. You know, it was the most, it's not even, you didn't even have like a lesser condition. No, it was like, this is nothing. You're fine. And I was like, hmm. oh, and then I remember driving home like elated. And then, like, yeah. then, then the next day it was like, just back to the bullshit and back to me being like worried about all the normal static. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's how it has to be. I think. I think, yeah, you can't live in those like heightened realms for too long. No, because I kind of do lately. I'm having a massive problem with anxiety um, and like constantly feeling as if terrible things are happening and it will make you nuts. So it's just, it's no way to exist. I don't recommend it. So how are you dealing with it? Like, what are you anxious about? Like just everything? Not well. Um, It kind of, oh God, I don't even know where to trace this to. It probably kind of started with my dad's death. And then it really, really picked up with the uh, Japanese tsunami. And since then, it's just been a constant worry about like earthquakes, atomic bombs, um, explosions, house fires, all this stuff. And it really descends on upon me at night. My boyfriend calls it uh, my night melancholy. And so without fail, I'll get into bed and just have a breakdown, which is super fun for him. But it's just like, is there any, is this this postpartum at all? Like, or is it something that preceded the birth of your child? Oh, it it preceded it. Um, potentially has gotten worse since her, uh, because, you know, I worry about her now as well. Um, and it has to do with planes too. Like I haven't gotten on a plane since 2008 and I won't fly. And we're supposed to take her to Arkansas to visit her, uh, paternal grandparents. And that's been a whole thing. So I would imagine it's something that probably requires medication, but I refuse to take medication. So I'm just kind of making my boyfriend suffer through it with me um, and listen, <laughs> listen about it every night is my solution. Yeah, no, my wife, um, you know, went through kind of a period where she had uh, postpartum depression, you know, in the early yeah. going and she, she had to medicate it. Um, you know, that was what the doctor said anyway. And it actually did uh, to the doctor's credit, like fix it. But with the sun, yeah. when the sun would go down, she would just all of a sudden start like crying. You know, I'd be like, "What's going on?" <laughs> you know, She's like an emotional werewolf. Yeah, yeah, it's very strange. But you know, that's the I mean, the biological element, and then the the neurochemistry. I mean, who who knows, man? But it's a, it's a major deal. Oh, it's a weird time. I know. I was crying over weird stuff too, and I'm not really a crier. Um, and then. You know, we would just be in the pediatrician's office and he'd be like, are you okay? And I'd burst into tears, which is something <laughs> that is not normal behavior for me. 
Oh man. Yeah. And this is what I always say to my friends who, uh, like tell me that they're having a child for the first time. And I'm not one to like weigh in all that much on the experience because that always, that annoyed me. It's annoying. Oh yeah. But I always just say like, the only thing I usually say consistently is like, welcome to a state of permanent fear. You know? Yeah. It's true. It raises the stakes. And like, that's, I've been, I've been like really afraid ever since I found out my wife was pregnant, like in, in, yeah. a, in a heightened way. And it'll never end. <laughs> no I doubt. Know. We thought, we thought our baby had down syndrome for the first six months of the pregnancy because of a really bad ultrasound. Ugh. And so we were scared forever. And then we were scared about the amnio. And then we were scared after the amnio because you can miscarry after the amnio. And then we started, once we found out she was fine, we just started getting scared about the delivery. And then you deliver her and you get scared because she was born with a broken collarbone. I mean, it just never ends. Never. Yeah. So it's like, that's the, that's the thing you're now. And that, that is what happens when you decide to like procreate is that you've basically right. invited nonstop fear into your life until death. <laughs> yeah. And I'd already felt that about my dog. So it's just been exacerbated. Well, okay. So like this is, uh, cause we have, a, you, you have a French bulldog too, right? Yeah, I forgot. You have a French bulldog. Yeah, we have similar. I think we have similar situations. Like, like you were describing yeah. your parents and their their <laughs> roles and their politics. It seems very, you know, very similar. But um, I have a dog, and before uh, wait, what? What's your French bulldog's name? Walter. 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 Yeah. So Walter's a good dog, and before we had the baby, he was like the center of our lives. Yes. We babied yeah. the dog and like, we didn't, I didn't even think we realized how much we were babying the dog, you know, it, I know uh, love the, I mean, I, and I'm a dog, I'm an animal person. So like, I love, love the dog. But since we've had the kid, the dog has receded in terms of like how much attention it's like, you know, you cannot lavish the same amount of attention on the dog <laughs> that you yeah. do when you're trying to take care of a child too, you know? Right. So how is, I know how, what is your dog's name again? My dog is Christmas. Right. So how's Christmas and, how's Christmas well, doing? See, she's a girl and she was such my baby and my everything. I'm just crazy about this dog. Um and I was having so much stress before we had the baby about because, you know, when we we're going to the hospital, what are we going to do with the dog? I've never been away from the dog, you know. So we hired someone for $150 a night to come sleep in our bed to sleep with the dog um, because I didn't want her to not have someone to be with at night. <laughs> and then we brought the baby home and she hates the baby. She just hates her. Um, <laughs> and it's not like a hostile hatred where she's snapping at her it's like she's disgusted she can't even believe that we would like have this thing and put this thing in her space so the baby really loves her um and now that she's kind of learning how to crawl will tackle the whole room to get to the dog and then the dog will just like give her the dirtiest look you've ever seen in your life and get up and walk away um and so i keep hoping it'll change because if the dog would just entertain the baby it would make my life so much easier you know because the baby will play with her for hours well the, but, the relationship like once they walk and they talk a little you know it's like i've watched yeah. it happen i've watched it happen because, really well, was your dog weird too i've heard french bulldogs in particular are weird about babies well french bulldogs what i found because i've had i had a border collie before a french bulldog which seems like the exact opposite end of the spectrum yeah it does um and so like my my first dog the border collie was like very brainy you know like super super yeah. super smart and high mental energy and physical energy and it's like you know it's a, it's a job to have one of those dogs but french bulldogs are like really emotionally yeah. intelligent and so 
they take things really hard and they have that. Like, <laughs> not, I know they're not very smart, but they have like high emotional intelligence and they're very, yeah. very like sensitive and fragile. <laughs> it's so true. I mean, I've never seen a dog look at me the way that this dog looks at me when her feelings are hurt. It right. will just crush me. Yeah. 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 And like, they don't let, they, they're not shy about letting you know that they're like sad or yeah, no, heartbroken no. by something that you've done. So I know I try to still be a good, like, you know, uh, doggy father. What do you call yourself? <laughs> I don't want to say dog owner, but I don't want to say dog guardian. Cause that sounds precious and stupid, but yeah, the, the weird thing we got going with our dog is that I call my boyfriend, my dog's boyfriend. So I say like, go find your boyfriend. I don't know how that got started. <laughs> um, and then to me, I just call her my best friend. So I say all the time, like, we're best friends, Christmas, aren't we? We're best friends. And then I say, where's my best friend? So oh. that's how it goes down in my house. That's sort of sweet. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so I know you have to go soon, but I, before you go, I want to talk to you a bit about what you got going on um, with regard to TV and like that side of things. Like, how do you, like, what are you, what are you doing and what do you think about that? Okay. Um, what's going on, man? Are you ready for the list? Yeah. Um, my boyfriend and I sold a young adult book on a partial in December. So we'd written half of it. So now we have until I believe the end of March to write the other half of it. So that's what we're doing right now. And we're doing alternating chapters. So he does the boy chapters. I do the girl chapters. And I have a movie that's supposedly going into production in June. That you wrote? I wrote it. Lynn Shelton's directing it. She directed Hump Day and Your Sister's Sister. And then Rebecca Hall is the lead, um, who's like in the town in Vicky Christie, Barcelona. And uh, I'm supposed to, like today I was supposed to be trying to sell a TV show I'm taking around, but that got canceled. So sometime in the next few weeks, trying to get into television. And uh, that's about it for right now, I guess. Well, that sounds like a lot. Like, so you wrote a screenplay, you got an agent, you sold the screenplay. Yes, it all I did that. It all happened. It really did. And so, um, yeah, the book thing. I mean, you know, once you have a child, I think you start getting really panicky about how you're going to support your child for the rest of your life, and the book thing feels a bit flimsy financially. So I'm really working on expanding into other areas. So how do you do that though? Like, where did you start? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Cause like, I'm kind of at that point too. And it's like, but I'm not, I don't think I'm as far along. And it's like, what do you, what do you do? Like, do you just call an agent or do you have friends in the business who helped you or what, what happened? Well, like, do you have, you have a book agent? I have a book agent. Yeah. So you should get your book agent to help you. Cause it originally started out like my book agent hooked me up with a book to film agent to sell my novels for film. And then that book to film agent sort of would help me with stuff. But I eventually hit a point where I had to leave because I wanted to just write spec scripts and they don't really handle that. But then I got hooked up through another person through my book agent. Uh, so I feel like if you're already represented, that's the way to go. Like ask your agent for help. Um, otherwise, like just friends who are represented, ask them if they would be willing to show your stuff if you want to keep being friends. I don't know if that's a good idea, but um, <laughs> right. I feel like people usually sort of come by these connections through people they know, especially in the entertainment industry. And so what about your work ethic? And I mean, it sounds like you have a strong work ethic and like in your schedule and like, how do you balance it all? And how do you do like, what does an actual writing day look like for you? Yeah, I'm like a pretty focused person. 
So my boyfriend and I are on shifts right now with the baby. So he watches her 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And I watch her 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. And then we kind of do like the morning walk and the bedtime bath together. Um, So I have four hours a day right now. And I can usually bang out two pages a day, which is what I've done my entire writing career uh, within those four hours. Okay. And so you and you're working on that book right now. You're not working on a script. I just finished a script, a, a second one. So that's finished, and now we're, like, full-time on the book. Okay. okay. But so, like, when you're working on a script, is it two pages a day or is it more? It's two pages a day unless I'm trying to meet a deadline and I can kind of handle four pages a day of a script. Do you uh, do you do outlines for scripts? Uh, not always. I tend to get really bored with an outline. And then I always find even if you outline, once you sit down, it stops making sense once you're actually having to fill in motivations. Right. So um, these days, the the pattern tends to be that my first draft is garbage. But once I finish it, I have a really clear idea of where I'm going. And the second draft ends up being pretty good. Being pretty good. Well, all right. Is there anything that you uh, that we didn't cover that you want to talk about? I mean, I feel like we got a lot of different stuff in here. Uh, we didn't talk about my first period. We did. When did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> that happened in a crate and barrel in white jeans. Wow. Real for real? Yeah. Yeah, for real. In a crate and barrel? Yeah, I was like um, squatting to look at some ornaments <laughs> <laughs> on the ornament rack. And then I was in a white pair of jeans and looked down and it was so pretty was, shocking. So white jeans, clearly, uh, clearly pre-goth. Uh, this was pre-goth. Yeah, yeah, this was, yeah, like 12 years old. Okay. But now now I feel like we've really covered everything. <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad we got there. Thank you for talking to me. It's been really fun. Thank you for having me. Okay, folks, there you go. That is Andrea Siegel. Go get some of her books. Go get all of her books. They are called Like the Red Panda, To Feel Stuff, and The Kid Table. You can find her online at andreasiegel.com. She's probably on the Facebook, and uh, she is definitely on the Twitter, at Andrea Siegel. I highly recommend that. She's a very skilled tweeter. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And, hey, don't forget to go get the app, the official app of this program. It is free. It is available for just about any handheld device whether it's an iPad, an iPhone, an iPod Touch, or your Android contraption. And just uh, for the uninitiated, here's what the app is. It is a thing that lives on your little phone, and it automatically uploads new episodes of this show to your phone uh, so that you don't have to do it manually. You can star your favorite episodes. You can download episodes to listen to while offline, and you can access the full archives of the show via the app. So you can get all of the episodes, including all of the past episodes, uh, if you so desire. Okay. Uh, otherwise, uh, I think that's it. I think I'm in a funk. I'm in a uh, media funk. I'm in a creative funk. I don't know what to write about. Uh, I've lost my voice. I have uh, creative laryngitis. My soul is tired. I don't even know what to talk about. Uh, I don't know how to make a unique contribution to this conversation. Like, what is my, what is my unique contribution? What is the point of me? What's my destiny, Mom? Please remember that Juna Barnes wrote in bed wearing makeup with her hair done and that Benny Goodman died of a heart attack while practicing Mozart. That's all for now. Thanks for being here, folks. I'll be back again soon in just a few days. Uh, I think you know that. Enjoy the rest of your week. Don't watch the Super Bowl. Resist the Super Bowl. And don't write about the Super Bowl. Please, just stop. Just stop.